Welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Living Jewishly podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Rabbi Rachel. And this is Rabbi Marcus. It's so good to have you back. It's so good to have another conversation. I hope you came back after our very spicy episode on football. I hope people people didn't stop listening. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, so because uh, I want to, I want to talk to him here. Uh, we we have a we have a special guest on our podcast, and we'll introduce the the topic in a second. Uh, Reverend Thomas, one of uh, one of the local uh, reverends here. He's the pastor of Mount Olivet Church, and uh, the immediate past president of the Black Ministerial Alliance it includes thirteen different churches around the St. Paul area. So I wanted to, t- I'm bringing you in because I wanted to tell you, we did this Super Bowl episode. We did this football episode where we talked about the, the ethics of playing football and the, uh, how do you be a religious person and watch football with the injuries and the things that are going on? And it was, uh, well, it was pretty dicey. We had a rabbi who loved football. We we're like kind of not so hot on football. And uh, so it was a really fun conversation. <laughs> how do you feel about, if we want to do one football and one foot, do you like football? Do you like football? I grew up playing football. Really? So... I guess I would be on the side of the rabbi who was for football. <laughs> there you go. There did you did you watch the Super Bowl? I caught the last nine minutes of the second quarter, and I watched all of the second half. Wow, that was, I mean that was a good game. Yeah, Whatever was, you feel about football, that was a that was a good game to watch. Yeah, that was a, that was a good one. Yeah, it was a fun game. Anyway, so a lot's been going on in our life. It's been great. We watched the Super Bowl. We had, I would say we had the Super Bowl on. I'm not sure we we, we didn't really it watch intently, it, but we, we had it on. It was on. It was there. We felt like it felt weird to not partake in the American tradition of watching the Super Bowl. So we, we did it. Yeah. Um, what else? What else is going on? I appreciated the halftime show. I thought Rihanna was great. I didn't see Rihanna. I didn't see Rihanna, but it was good. I thought she was great. And she did it like nine months postpartum and pregnant. And God bless her. <laughs> yeah. I thought I thought it was fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah, did you see the show? I did. You think? What'd you think? I'm not up on modern music. <laughs> oh. So I'd rather not comment. <laughs> You're not an expert on the uh, modern music? No. I hear you. See, we were listening to her saying, wow, I, I recognize this song from the radio. I, I didn't know this was Rihanna. You know, each of the ones. Uh, so Super Bowl was great. Um, we've had some warmer weather here in Minnesota lately. It's true. It's gone back. I feel like we've gone backwards. We're back in the 20s, but we had a, a slight... I'm doing something interesting this year. I am. I don't know if it's interesting. Interesting to me. I am crocheting what's called a temperature blanket. So every day you look at what the temperature of the day is and each 10 degrees corresponds to a different color of yarn. So you have a kind of track of what the weather was throughout the year. Um, and it's actually been making me pay quite close attention. And I, I look back and I remember the different days based on the colors. Like, oh, that was the day of black. That was when it was really, really cold. And and now I have a little bit of light green. That's my spring color. And there were a couple days that got into the 40s. So that's been that's been interesting to help me kind of reflect each day on, on what the weather was and, and look back and remember it. It's been fun so far. Yeah. And the, 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 the cutest part is Hadassah, our, our three-year-old, is, is sits down next to, to uh, Mama Rachel and, and constantly wants to uh, partake in the, uh, the crafting and so I just like saw my future before my eyes, my two ladies uh, sitting there crafting. <laughs> the couch. That's what they're going to, that's going to be the rest of my life. Um, 
So it's, it's funny that you say the cold weather's black. See, for me, someone who really cares about the running of an ice skating rink, the outdoor <laughs> ice skating rink, like the warm weather is the black weather. And I want like the five degree days. But yeah, they just chose to close down all the outdoor ice skating rinks at uh, in St. Paul because it's been such unseasonably warm weather. We had about like a week and a half of ice skating weather. So it's a little, this, this winter was kind of a dud. Who knows, though? Who knows? It's, it's still, it, we still have a long winter ahead of us. As we... Let's, let's, ju- let's jump into it. What's our topic today? You don't like us just messing around like this. <laughs> I thought this was just here so we could just talk to each other. <laughs> our topic today is we're going to go through another speech of Martin Luther King, and this one called On Being a Good Neighbor. And we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Reverend, right? Dr. Reverend? Reverend Doctor, if you're technical. Reverend Doctor. Rev- <laughs> we like to be technical. I feel like Doctor, was there, is that particular Reverend Doctor over Dr. Reverend? Yes. Uh, Reverend Doctor means I don't have a PhD. Oh, it's okay. You could have faked us. So right. I'm a D-men, Doctorate of Ministry. So that's the Reverend Doctor. Oh, oh interesting. Very cool. very cool. So we have a very special guest with us, Reverend Dr. Thomas. Would you introduce yourself? Uh, hello, everybody. I'm James Thomas. I'm the pastor of the Mount Olivet Baptist Church here in St. Paul. I've been there for 24 years. It's been a joy to serve in this community. And let me say something. I enjoyed the intro music. Uh, I'm almost jealous, so <laughs> I wish I had it. But I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, that intro music was made by uh, Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger, and they are congregants, and Colleen plays with us. She plays this amazing violin, amazing musician, and she recorded that for us, and it's uh, great. We love it, too, so I'm glad you enjoy it. I think she could probably make you theme music, too, so <laughs> we'll, we'll put in a special request. I appreciate that. <laughs> Reverend Thomas, are you from St. Paul originally? No, I came here from Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. Uh, 24 years ago when you 20, started? 24 years ago. I actually grew up in a place called Beloit, Wisconsin, uh, about, well, it's just on the border of uh, Illinois and Wisconsin to the south. So I grew up there and uh, went away to college and went to Nashville and then went to school there and got married and then um, finished seminary and started working, got a call to come to the Mount Olivet Church. And so, again, that was 24 years ago. Wow. Are you happy to be back in the Midwest? You know, I really like St. Paul. The only thing I don't like is the weather. <laughs> Fair enough. It is it is way too cold. Oh. Yeah. Especially coming from Tennessee, I would say. Especially imagine. coming from Tennessee. <laughs> so we traded six months of summer for six months of winter. <laughs> that is a, that is a trade. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is definitely something. So we, we yeah. moved. We had been living most immediately in New York, but we met when we were living in Los Angeles. So we we feel that that trading that good weather for for the lovely, lovely Minnesota winters. Yeah. yeah. I actually got Rachel to move with me from going to school in Los Angeles, which was 75 degrees and sunny every day to upstate New York, basically. And that was very different climate. Uh, so she's a wonderful person. Uh, what are we what are we so what are we talking about, Dangan? So a few. I don't think we said it yet. Yeah. So well, I think we did, but a few. We did, say, we, <laughs> did, we did say, didn't we? Yes. Yeah, so for those of you who are dutiful listeners to the podcast, you will dutiful. remember that do we have shirts for them. <laughs> <laughs> you will remember that a few weeks ago, in honor of Martin Luther King Day, we read Rabbi Marcus and I read uh, through one of Dr. Martin Luther King's sermons, 
and kind of approached it as, you know, we're two rabbis, we're religious people. Dr. Martin Luther King was certainly a religious person. Um, let's let's take a look at this writings through the lens of religion, through the lens of what can what Torah can we learn from this? What wisdom can we learn from this and apply to our lives? And and especially how do two rabbis read through the writings of a of a Christian pastor? And we we loved recording it, we loved studying it and reading it, and we we got some nice feedback. I think people appreciated hearing um uh, hearing one of Dr. Martin Luther King's sermons in that in that lens. But it's not quite enough. It's not quite enough for two white rabbis, I think, to to delve into the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, we wanted to be in in better and more authentic relationship um, with with both with Dr. Martin Luther King's writings and with the local black community that that we live with here in St. Paul that are our neighbors and our congregants and our and our fellows in walking in religion. And so that's kind of how this came about today. Yeah, I've been talking to uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Thomas uh, for a while, almost a year now, right? About a year? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just we kind of have uh, periodic meetings. We kind of discuss what's going on. We get a piece of pie. That pie I remember the pie mm-hmm. and uh, the coffee we had. Although I learned you're not a coffee drinker mm-hmm. and we just have uh, conversations on, I like to hear, you know, what's going on with his community and uh, he hears what's going on with my community. We just, we kind of just talk and we get along nicely. It's been fun. And uh, I look forward to continuing that relationship. And uh, he's also a big fan of, I think, Dr. Martin Luther King. Would you like to talk about a little bit? So what's your, what's your connection to Dr. Martin Luther King? You know, I, when you asked me that question, I was thinking about the fact that I saw the funeral of Dr. King. Now, I actually watched that on TV, and I remember being in Detroit uh, shortly after his uh, murder with my parents. Um, so that, that really had a tremendous impact on me. Uh, and then as a student in uh, college and in seminary, actually reading the text and going down to Atlanta to visit Morehouse College, where Dr. King was a student. And talking with some of the people that he actually worked with, uh, C.T. Vivian comes to mind and some other persons. All of that played an important part in shaping my thinking and how we view this culture we live in, how we view the world and how we view individuals. So just that I just that exposure has kind of shaped my thinking in terms of also looking at justice and what it means for people. How much would you say, if I, I, this is probably an impossible question, but how much does his teaching and his theology kind of shape your own personal religious theology? Well, you know, I think that best be answered by the fact that both Dr. King and I are both Baptist preachers. Mm. So that would probably, so I could probably say, probably shapes about 95% of <laughs> wow. who, who I am. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, powerful. Really powerful. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, continue to explore that. Um, it's so exciting. And, and you know about me, we've, we've talked about this. We've talked about this podcast. It really, um, his, his theology, his, his, his lessons, what his values, what he thinks about the world really impacts me. And, you know, especially through reading a uh, strength through love, it was, it was, it was a re- religious awakening. For me. It was, I kind of, I remember the week after reading, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, I, I, I was like almost rebelling against Judaism. I was like, where, where is this in Judaism? Like, where, find me this in Torah. I remember going to my rabbis being like, Dr. Martin Luther King said this much better than any of our rabbis did. Find me where it says it. And thank God I did find those texts that speak to me. And maybe we'll talk about some of them today. But, um, you know, it was definitely 
it, it let, made me look inside myself and our own tradition and say, and our tradition needs to be like this. We need to be just as meaningful in that regard. All right, so let's get into it. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at a sermon called On Being a Good Neighbor. And we're not going to go through the whole entire sermon uh, in terms of saying it all out loud. We're going to really identify um, important paragraphs. And then we're going to talk about those paragraphs or passage. We'll read those out loud to you. And hopefully you'll get the drift of the whole entire sermon. But if you want to read the whole sermon as whole, we'll attach a link to the, the full sermon in our podcast notes so you can uh, kind of read the whole sermon. But I definitely think you should get a copy of Strength Through Love because it'll change your life. All right. Are we ready? We're ready. All right. So the, the sermon itself begins with a, a specific uh, verse, and it's a verse from the famous story, the parable of the Good Samaritan in the, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and so he, he kind of goes through relatively long for him describing the story. I know, especially for our Jewish listeners, we might not be so familiar with the story from the New Testament. So we're going to have we're going to start with uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Thomas reading us this story from Luke. Would you like to read it to us? Yes. This is the story in Luke chapter 4, verse 25 through verse 37. One day an expert in the law stood up to test him. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up this question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the same road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too, when a Levite came to that spot and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But when a Samaritan on a journey came upon him, he looked at him and had compassion. He went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he said, and on my return I will repay you for any additional expense. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed him mercy, replied the expert in the law. Beautiful. And such a powerful story. Um, just to, to kind of, I will, I'd love to just get your reaction. Like, what does this story mean to you? Like, personally? Yeah. I'm sorry, before we get into that, there, I, Dr. King gives some background on this text that I think would be helpful for our listeners, oh, just to give people who aren't familiar with this text and background. So some background on the Samaritans. So the Samaritans and the Jews had had no relationship with one another. They were not they were not uh, people who you would think would automatically treat one another as neighbors. So the fact that it's a Samaritan who comes forward, that's supposed to be quite shocking. It's supposed to be quite 
um, you're supposed to notice that, that it's someone, it's not the priest or the Levite, it's someone outside of the of the insular tribe who's coming to help. Um, and the other thing Dr. King points out is the road to Jericho, that the road to Jericho is this is this dangerous road from the uh, heights of Jerusalem down to the depths of Jericho. So it's it's a common place that, that the robbers would have come and it would be a dangerous place to, to stop and help. Yeah. So now that we know that nice back, thank you for that background information. Reverend, what, what would you what would you like to say about this up front? You know, how does this story connect to you? Does this how does this how does this connect to you? I preached this sermon on MLK Day. Hey. And with the idea that this world is not the most friendliest place. And if there's anything we need to learn, it's how to be a good neighbor. And so in this sermon, he tells us that being a neighbor means looking beyond ourselves, and it means extending our hands to people we don't know. So for me, that's really important, especially when this guy asks him the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. And then after he tells it, he asks the guy, who is the neighbor? And the guy says, well, the one who helped. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Mm -hmm. So for me, the lesson is, and the thing I shared with the folks I preached to that day, if you want to be a neighbor, it means going out and actually doing something. Mm -hmm. I think there's something powerful there, too, in that the person asking the question is defined in the text as an expert in the law. Mm. And I think as rabbis, that catches our attention because in most of our texts, the expert in the law, that's a that's an honorific. That's yeah, a good that's thing, a good thing. Yeah. right? That's a good thing to be an expert in the law. It's a good thing to have that 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 knowledge and wisdom and expertise in Torah. Um, but what this text is teaching us is that that's not enough to, to exactly as, as you said so beautifully, that it's about action. It's about what do we do with that expertise and that and that knowledge of the law. We may know what what we're supposed to be doing, but are we doing it? Are we living our lives according to the the precepts that we that we've been taught? Yeah, really, really a very powerful story. And look, you know, I, I think someone who's t- totally immersed in the law and, and 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 doesn't engage in the real world of actually helping people. That's like the antithesis of Judaism. And I think that's, it seems what Jesus was trying to fight against. Although I will like, I mean, it must be stated because it's uncomfortable, it's sort of uncomfortable as a Jew to read the story. Cause like Jesus is kind of like insulting our heroes. Like these are for rabbis, like these are our people. Right. These not only, not only the expert in the law, the, the Cohen and the Levite, the priest and the Levite, the, they're the, they're the ones not doing what, what's, yeah, in our, in the, in our kishkas, in our gut. It's an uncomfortable story to read. And, and I think it's meant to be. It is. Cause that's what Jesus does with parables. He turns them on their head so that the unexpected is what happens. Mm-hmm. Because what you're saying is actually, is really true. No one would expect a Samaritan to do this. You know, Samaritans weren't really thought of that well. But I think the other piece that I should have said is this. This is not about reaching out to the people who look like you, mm-hmm. act like you, believe like you, think like you, live where you live. This is about reaching out to people who are totally opposite of you. Mm-hmm. And we'll hear that as we go through this, through this sermon. Right. The whole point is to extend what it means to be a neighbor. Usually you think of as a neighbor as somebody, oh, who lives in the same location as you or is like you or is, this, is similar to you. Um, and, 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 you know, it, 
he extends this as saying, no, your neighbor is anyone who's in need. Anyone who's in need, who, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, like who's near you, right? And who you're in contact with, which in this day and age is a very complicated affair because we seem to be in contact with like every, like the internet makes it so that we're in contact with everything. Um, but here, he at least he seems to say, the person you come into contact with who is in trouble, that person becomes your neighbor. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter where they are. And I, I like what you said. I mean, I like, maybe it's good that we feel uncomfortable, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's good in that way. Because um, look, he was talking to a Jewish audience, a lot, a lot of Jews, you know, Jesus was talking to. And maybe it was that, that was the purpose. You yeah. know? But it also drops that lens on anybody. Because if you are so stuck on being concerned about the people in your clan, your caste, your tribe, those are the only people who can be your neighbor. Jesus says, nah, that ain't it. <laughs> there's, there's something more to this. The person you see who's in need, that's your neighbor. Beautiful. I don't, I don't think this is where we'll go today, but at another point, it would be interesting to look through the Jewish texts of Via Hafta Lareha Kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself, because of course, they're quoting the, they're quoting the Hebrew Bible here. Yeah. They're quoting texts that we're quite familiar with. Um, and there's a whole rabbinic tradition of that that asks that same question: who Who is this neighbor? Who is your neighbor? So it would be interesting to look at those parallel texts and see how they differ, because I think they do, and how, of course, the historical context of the of Jews as a minority certainly influences that. But I right. think that I think it's an interesting. Because what, what does the Talmud say in reaction to who's your neighbor? The classic answer in Rashi, stated in one of our foremost commentators from the 11th century, is, is your fellow Jew, right? Like. We read that today and it kind of bristles us like, no, we want to be able to love everyone. But what does it mean that that text was written by an oppressed, repressed people, right? The Jews, both the Rashi in the 11th century and certainly the rabbis were completely repressed, oppressed people. And for them, their experience was, uh, you know, not a friendly world, as you said. Right, care for your own. Right. So it became the answer to that, I think, in that period was, well, care for your own. Right? Make sure that you're caring for your own. And how does that maybe change in our, our day and age when we aren't the extremely oppressed and repressed people? Uh, where we live in a, a wonderful country where we can practice our religion and, and be who we are. How does it, how does being a repressed or oppressed person change the reading of this narrative? And maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't because like the Samaritan was probably an oppressed or repressed p- p- people as well. I don't know. I, especially with, I, I think in the black community as well, like, feeling racism all the time and dealing with that, does that push you to turn inwards and say, I have to care for my, 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 my fellow black person, right? Or does it push you outwards and say, no, I need to still care for everybody. How does that, does that play a role for you? I think that there's a moment when you have to look at life realistically and you realize there's some things that you have to do, ought to do, should do. But then there's this need also to want to break out and understand that life really is broader than just your own. Uh, Because if we're going to be caught up in hatred, then this world is going to get worse, much more worse than what it is. So how do you how do you live in this world looking at the things that are reality, but also knowing that this world can be so much better? Mm. If you're not caught up in, in the stuff that other people want to put on you. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, not easy. Maybe this is, I really want to get to Martin Luther King's words here, but this might be a good time to text here. 
because it's what's on my mind. Um, and I wonder if you think this way as well. This text made me immediately jump to a counterpoint within the Jewish tradition. I would love to read it here. Can I, can I just read you this, uh, this, this uh, midrash here? So this is, this is from... I was just thinking when you explain what a yes, midrash is. Go ahead. The midr- so the midrash is, is a, a rabbinic body of work um, that kind of is like fan fiction. It kind of fills in the details of the Torah, uh, that stuff that's not written, the gaps in the story and everything like that. And it's a way for the rabbis to bring their values into the text a little bit and kind of... And in many ways, it is what Jesus is doing here. It's a parable that takes the quotes from the Hebrew Bible, takes the and expands upon them and says, what do we learn from this? How do we, how do we live this in our own lives? In essence, we can say Jesus is doing a midrash here with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and this is a parallel midrash from our rabbis. Yeah, so this, this midrash in particular is on the text of one Jacob um, in, the, in, say, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, right? In the book of Genesis, when uh, Jacob is leaving Levan, is leaving Laban, um, and, uh, you know, he's going to meet, uh, goes out sort of looking or finds Esau. And it seems that in the biblical text, he just sort of finds Esau. According to the rabbis, it seems that he was actually looking for Esau. He was actually looking for his kind of lost brother. And the Midrash is going to question that here. And it's really interesting. So it says, um, Jacob sent messengers ahead to the brothers Esau. Rabbi Huna applied the verse. He that passeth by and meddleth with strife, not his own, is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. Proverbs 26, 17. Shmuel, son of Nachman, said an allegorical story. It's like a parable, right? You might say. It's like robbers who slept on the side of the road. And a person came by and woke them up, declaring, wake up, there are robbers here. The robbers then wake up and strike him so that that person says, evil has arisen. And the robbers say back to him, it's your fault. You woke us up. <laughs> Thusly said the Holy Blessed One, God, he was going his own way, right? Meaning Esau was going his own way. And you dispatch a delegation to this, his saying, thus saith thy servant Jacob, right? So meaning, why, Jacob, why did you send, why did you go looking for trouble? You should have kept, kept your head down. There's no reason to go through and look for look for this danger here. This story sort of immediately came came by. I know there's a little bit more, but we don't need, necessarily need it. There's a little bit more, you know, uh, this 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 passage immediately came and connected to this story here because it seems to be almost opposite, right? And and I think it provides a good sort of counterpoint of like, wait a second, it's dangerous, right? Like, should you necessarily have to put yourself in danger, like real danger, in order to, you know, to to save someone else? Should you come first, right? And here it seems that he's saying, you know, maybe you should keep your head down, right? And you should protect your own first, protect yourself first. If it's in a dangerous area, right, you should protect yourself, right? Which, I don't know, it's, it's something that does come through my head as well. I mean, I know Martin Luther King is going to get into dangerous altruism and we'll get into that. But uh, how do you, how, how, what do you think of that, that story there? Is that, a, is that a voice that also plays in your head as well? I think it's an interesting story and it is a voice that plays in my head. Why go looking for danger? Why go looking for trouble? And whenever this conversation comes up in my congregation about how you help people who are homeless, who are standing at the stoplights or at intersections who are asking for money or whatever, the question is, how do I know this person is not dangerous or whether or not this person needs it? So this story does resonate in many ways. Yeah, and I think we'll, I hope to keep the story in the back of our head sort of as we go through uh, more of Dr. Martin Luther King's words here and, and see 
you know, how does it play out and how, how may both be true and, you know, or one, one be different than the other in that regard. Should we keep going? Yeah. And to give, yeah, let's go, let's delve into, into Dr. King's words to give people context if they haven't read, uh, read this sermon or haven't read it recently that Dr. King will go through kind of three categories of altruism. And of course, spoiler alert, the end is that we need all three, (laughs) all three are one, but he categorizes it into three ways. The first is universal altruism, the second dangerous altruism, and the third excessive altruism. Right, right. So he's talking basically about why not, um, you know, only help those in your group, right? And why we have to sort of look beyond our, our particular ethnic group or religious group or what have you. All right, universal altruism. The real tragedy of such narrow provincialism is that we see people as entities or merely as things. Too seldom do we see people in their true humanness. A spiritual myopia limits our vision to external accidents. We see men as Jews or Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Chinese or American, Negroes or whites. We fail to think of them as fellow human beings made from the same basic stuff as we, molded in the same divine image. The priest and the Levite saw only a bleeding body, not a human being like themselves. But the good Samaritan will always remind us to remove the cataracts of provincialism from our spiritual eyes and see men as men. If the Samaritan had considered the wounded man as a Jew first, he would not have stopped, for the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings. He saw him as a human being first, who was a Jew only by accident. The good neighbor looks beyond the external accidents and discerns, the, discerns those inner qualities that make all men human and therefore brothers. Reactions. Agree? Disagree? I mean, I think that there are, I mean, there's so much Jewish thought in this text. Like this is one of those texts that you feel like this could have been said uh, by a great rabbi as well as it, as well as it was said by, by Dr. Reverend King. Um, I, I mean, I think the two things that jump out at me is we have a theological idea that was popularized by Martin Buber of being in relationship is an I-thou relationship as opposed to an I-it relationship that we often interact with the people around us as it, which is in, in Dr. King's language, we see people as entities or merely as things. And we react to people in a transactional way. They give something to me, I give something to them, we end. Um, but that's not how we that's not how we experience God in the world. We experience God in the world through I vow relationships, through seeing the person in front of you as a holy divine being in their whole humanity, in their whole humanness, um, as a full, complete divine being in front of you. Um, so that that really struck me. And of course, the language of molded in the divine image. I mean, that's that's our that's our language. That's our bread and butter. But Salam Elohim, you know, that that that's really how we how we see the world. So, so I, I connected so, so deeply to, to so much of what he's saying here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can improve on what you said, Rabbi Rachel. I think this captures exactly what he was trying to get at. And that is this world can't be so small that all we see are the folks we see every day or the folks who are in our circle. Um, we've got to break out of that. Uh, because again, when you look at our culture now, it is really divided is the best way I can say it. And there's, and, and, and we look, we've, we fail to see the humanness of the people that we're dealing with. 
hundred percent. I love what you said there that we need to make that effort because I think that's so true. I mean, even just this this beginning of this relationship here. I mean, you had, you had to make an it's you didn't you you two didn't just come across each other. You had to make an effort. You had to decide. I'm going to try and form this relationship. I'm going to try and and build this this friendship. The society we live in, certainly where we live in St. Paul, I mean, there may not be legal segregation, but there's certainly de facto segregation. I mean, we don't, if we just go about our lives without thought, we don't come across a lot of people who have different political views than we do, who are different race than we do. We happen to be a minority, so we live amongst people of a different religion than us. But, um, but I mean, it's, I think that what you're saying is is exactly right, that if we don't make the effort, it doesn't happen in our society naturally. No, even to the point of I call Rabbi Marcus brother. Mm. Uh, he's not my brother, <laughs> biologically. <laughs> but as, gosh, what is his name? I can't think of his name right now. But um, he says that he calls everybody brother. Mm. You know, because if you're a human being, you are my brother. And my sister. So when you think about the Good Samaritan, as Dr. King says, he didn't see a Jew. He saw a human being. And so many of our issues in this culture, society, would stop if we saw each other as brothers and sisters. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember we were talking one of our conversations about, you know, how do we, how do we defeat ignorance, ignorance? being ignorant um, and some of the racisms within our own communities. Um, and I wanted to kind of start up something where, you know, we just have families eating dinner together and talking about the ball game or talking about, you know, regular life stuff to see the commonalities between us that we're all human beings. And I think that's one of the reasons why I keep bringing this up because I'm like, I don't think it's the big conversations we're not having. I just don't even think we're having the small conversations. I don't think we're having like the normal human conversations with each other. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to say. I wanted to, push you a little bit because I want to, I want to, I want to see what you think about this. Recently, I think what we've seen in our, our society and culture um, is, is actually a little bit of a disagreement with Martin Luther King here um, is, is it especially came up with uh, Black Lives Matter um, and this idea basically that we've kind of come back to speaking about each other through the lens of ethnicity and, and race. Like you, it's more comfortable now to talk about uh, black people as a whole or Jewish people as a whole. And it, it sort of makes me uncomfortable. Like, I don't like categorizing people by the color of their skin or their, their religion or whatever. But, but an important point was, was, was brought up of the reason why people are doing this now is because, well, as you well know, black people, um, you know, are, are, are thought to have had to have different experiences because of their history, right? Because of the racism they've experienced, because of the ingrained racism within our society, they have different experiences of the world. Um, so it's obviously not the color of the skin that makes the difference, but because of un- the unfortunate ramifications of that in our racist society, you have a different experience than I do, right? For example, we talked about the police often, right? You know, my experience of police officers a lot in times in St. Paul, they'll pull me over when I'm seeing speeding. They see who I am and they say, oh, here's a nice warning. You, you can have a warning, right? And I have a kind of a pleasant experience. Have you had those same experiences? I don't think so. Right. We've talked about this before. So how does that actually change the way you respond to life when you have these experiences over and over again that are different to someone and correspond to race? Right. Do we then like is is one 
is one person's one race is suffering different than another race is suffering or religion suffering regard because of our experience, our different experiences of life. Does that make sense? I think I understand what you're saying to be, to experience that, to have that kind of experience or whoever is the same, you know, whether it is profiling or anything else, um, it is the same. So if you, if you've experienced that, then you do look at life different. And I go back to what I said earlier, some things are reality and they will not change. If I walk and I've had this happen, I walk into the store, toy store that used to be across from U.S. Bank on Grand. I have my son with me. He's about 10. I walk in because I'm going to get my daughter a present for her birthday. And all the white mothers tell their children, come to me. And they do not hide it. Horrible. So when that happens, it reminds me that people do make judgments based on my skin. Right. And how does that change the way you see the world? Right. So do you then consider someone differently by seeing a black person? You might say, well, they've had similar experiences probably to me. And so therefore, am I going to consider them differently based on their race? They're going to respond differently to incidences that occur because of their past experiences. Right. That's I think that's that's what's up for debate right now. I think that's why it's kind of gone back in some ways. It makes me uncomfortable, but there's something to it. I mean, I think to expand on your on your question. When, when I first read the, the, this, this sermon, there was something in me that wanted to push back. And I wanted to say, you know, we, we spoke about this when we were it's reflecting. because you're the expert on the law, Rachel. But I wanted to say, look, I'm a mom. It would be disingenuous of me to say I love all the children of the world equally. I don't. I love my child the most. It doesn't mean I don't also want to care for all the children of the world. But if there's a, if there's, if there's a decision that needs to be made and I need to help my crying child or another crying child, I'm going to first go to my crying child. And I think I would be a bad parent if I didn't feel that way, if I didn't love my child specifically. And I think that there is something, maybe it's because of our experience as a minority religion, but I think that there is something that's okay about particularism in addition to universalism. I think that there is something okay about, I, I do care for the Jews around the world. We're a minority. They are my brothers and sisters in a different way than everyone in the world is my brother and sister. And I do feel particular pride when, when a Jewish person does something great in the world. And I feel a particular embarrassment and shame when a Jewish person does something bad in the world. There, there is kind of a, a, a sense of family um, that I feel that that I think at least in this text, both Jesus and Dr. King are pushing back against. Um, but I wonder if if you have any uh, similar feelings or experiences. Let me offer this: is it is possible to care for your own, right? Absolutely. But what is not, or what should not be done, is to hurt others at the expense of putting my my child or my group of folks ahead of ahead of ahead mm-hmm. uh, because if that's the case then again we're in trouble um because again you can recognize i got to take care of my my child 
but I don't have to hurt anybody else's child mm-hmm. to make sure my child is taken care of. Beautiful. And I think it's e- even more so if my child is okay, then absolutely I should go help that other child, right? Just because I do love my child in a different way. And if she's crying, I'm going to go to her first. But if she's playing happily and there's another crying child, go help that other crying child too, right? That it doesn't, I think what, what you're saying is it doesn't have to be um, a, an or. It can be an and that they can have a particular love and a universal love. It can be both and. Yeah. I think, look, I think it's also, I think Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King is trying to steer us away from a trap, right? It's like, if I think about the needs of Hadassah, our daughter, right? She always needs something, right? She needs milk one day. She needs her stuffed animal. She needs a, to be potty trained. She's like, she has a million things that need to happen. Right? There's never a moment where Hadassah doesn't actually need something. Now, it might not be a big thing, but you can fall into this trap saying, my daughter always needs something. I'm a busy person. She needs me 100% of the time. I have therefore no, no time to help anyone else because I am so busy being there for the needs of my child. And I think that's the trap we fall into often. We, our human mind has the illusion that, that we always need more, right? There's never going to be a time where a human being says, I don't need anything. I don't want anything, especially a three-year-old, right? Um, and so you can easily fall into the trap of saying, I'm always, I'm always busy. I'm always helping my three-year-olds. So therefore, I'm not going to look. I don't have time to look outwards. I don't have time to help somebody else, right? Going back to the story, this, the, 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 you could have said the Levite or the Kohen had to go and make a sacrifice to the temple, right? They had something that they had to do, right? They had something, a need. And so you could say, well, I have my need that I have to take care of before their need, right? But that would be evil. Why? Because this person is in an immediate need, right? Is in, in fatal need. They are suffering. And I think what Martin Luther King is saying is we need a pause. Someone else's real suffering needs, we need to then therefore pause and turn away from our normal concerns to help the person who's suffering, no matter what, if, no matter whether they're a part of our family or not. Yeah, and you didn't include this passage in your chosen passages, but I mean, I think the... But I think the real life example that Dr. King brings in to his sermon, I mean, it brings it home in the most heartbreaking of ways. Dr. King brings in the example of, um, I think it was three black teenagers who got into a car accident and they were they were stranded on the side of the road, bleeding and suffering. I mean, this was the living, breathing example of the Good Samaritan and unfortunately had the opposite and devastating results where the ambulance driver came he was white. He saw they were black. He said, I don't, I don't serve you. And he drove away. And finally, someone came and put them in their car and drove them to the nearest hospital. And the attending doctor said, I'm white. You're black. I'm not serving you. And by the time they finally made it 30 miles to the, to the black hospital, it was too late and, and, and they didn't make it. And I mean, so I think we can have these abstract conversations about who is mine and who is outside of my group. But this this real world example Dr. King brings, I mean, it brings it home in the most in the most devastating ways. Yeah. And I think to pass what he says in the sermon that accentuates what you're saying is this. He says, what are the devastating consequences of this narrow group centered attitude? It means that one does not really mind what happens to the people outside his or her group. I don't know. I'm still stuck on this, though, because I'm saying to myself. Like maybe I'm taking the, I'm being devil's advocate here because obviously I read that story and I felt it really strongly, but what would it, what would it mean to put your, your, your head into the mind of the ambulance driver who's saying, you know, there are white people back at my hospital that need my care. And because I'm taking care of these people, I can't take care of these people, 
right? It just goes back to the family thing, right? Where it's, that's a bad excuse to make. But I could imagine it making sense at the, that moment, right? I could imagine it making sense if I really felt that these were my family and these aren't, right? Um, and and it, it's a, it, but it's false, right? Right. I think Dr. King is rightly pointing out right. that, that is, that's the evil, the evil extension of, w- of what this line of thinking is going towards. Right. That there has to be something, there has to be a break, that maybe particularism is okay and maybe loving your family in a different way than you love the rest of the world, it makes sense and it's human and it's natural. But if that is where it leads to, if it leads toward to leaving, bleeding teenagers on the side of the road, bleeding human beings on the side of the road to die because some amorphous other person could possibly need you. I mean, then you then you've lost the whole battle. There's no I don't think there's any 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 certainly any religious way to to look at that and say that that's an okay way to be in the world. No, I don't think so. Yeah, because the one thing I want to say is this. How do you respond as a person of faith? Because a person who doesn't have faith, you wouldn't expect anything out of them per se. But the truth is, sometimes people who don't profess to be religious act far better than people who say they are. (laughs) I mean, because if an ambulance driver drives up and says, you know what, I can't do this, then I have to wonder what kind of person that man is. And especially if he professes to be a person of faith, and then he can drive off. Or the doctor who says, I just don't serve you. So you profess to be a person of faith, but this is what you do? 100%. And I think flip it. I mean, let's say let's say the, the ambulance driver or the doctor is Jewish or black, and they come across a white supremacist with a big old swastika tattoo on their forehead. They still have the duty to save him. They, I, you know, they don't, they don't get to say, I don't serve your kind. They may say, just so you know, this is a Jew who's saving you. This is a black man who's saving you. You you need to rethink your beliefs, but they still save you, right? I I don't think there's any way to say that they don't. Israel into this conversation here. This happens all the time. You know, Israel. You know, a Palestinian terrorist is bombs a place and you know or kills kills a bunch of Jews and and you know the next thing they know they're in uh, you know an Israeli hospital being treated by Jewish doctors to make sure that they survive, even though they've just killed a bunch of people. We see it in Syria right now that Israel's going and helping with the with the horrible devastation that's happening there. They don't, right. you know, you don't ask. Right. And I think that's the baseline level of just being a religious person in this world. But unfortunately, it hasn't been, right? That's why we have Mount Sinai hospitals and, you know, all that we had Jewish hospitals and white and we had Catholic hospitals and Protestant hospitals. And unfortunately, that's, that's not been really, unfortunately. And, and I'm glad that it is now, of course, that to see there's a baseline level that everyone's a human being, everyone should see. Should we move on? Yeah, let's keep going. Dangerous altruism. Rabbi Rachel, take it away. Sure. Dangerous altruism. These are probable reasons for their failure to stop. This, of course, their failure to stop is referring back to the parable of the, of the Levite and the, and the priest. Yet there is another possibility, often overlooked, that they were afraid. The Jericho Road was a dangerous road. When Mrs. King and I visited the Holy Land, We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem to Jericho. As we traveled slowly down that meandering mountainous road, I said to my wife, I can now understand why Jesus chose this road as the setting for his parable. Jerusalem is some 2,000 feet above and Jericho 1,000 feet below sea level. The descent is made in less than 20 miles. 
Many sudden curves provide likely places for ambushing and exposes the traveler to unforeseen attacks. Long ago, the road was known as the Bloody Pass. So it is possible that the priest and the Levite were afraid that if they stopped, they too would be beaten. Perhaps the robbers were still nearby. Or maybe the wounded man on the ground was a faker who wished to draw passing travelers to his side for quick and easy seizure. I imagine that the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The good Samaritan engaged in a dangerous altruism. Beautiful. Reactions. Dangerous altruism. What do you guys think? The guide in question should always be, what happens if I don't stop? You know, what happens to this person if I don't help? So am I willing to put myself at risk? And that was a piece of the conversation we had earlier. Right. That while we concentrate on what could happen to me, the others, the flip side of that coin is what could happen to that person if I don't. Yeah, I'd love to ask you about this because I, I just don't understand in Christian theology. I mean, I'll talk about Jewish, Jewish theology. Jewish theology says if we're both in equal dangers, I save myself first. Okay? Like that, Judaism says, you come first. You have to protect yourself, number one, and make sure that you are safe and okay. That doesn't mean that, you know, any little danger means that you don't have to protect anyone else. But if you're in equal dangers, right, you, you should protect yourself first. Right? You shouldn't run into a fire, um, you know, to save someone uh, if, you know, uh, that's going to 100% hurt you and uh, burn you as well. Um, is that, is it the same in, in Christian theology or is it different? Well, you know, in Christian theology, I think we've got a strong theme that says that love is sacrificial. Mm. There's no greater love than a man who would lay down his life for his friend. So there's a moment when it does become sacrificial. And even in, when you look at the civil rights history, those changes were made because people were willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of others and for the future generations. Uh, there was an article that we posted in our church from a lady uh, whose husband, when he was a young man, marched in the civil rights movement, McKinley Hammond. If there were no McKinley Hammonds, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. So if you're willing to face dogs, the hoses, the beatings, the jailings, then, then I don't know that we would be where we are today. But because people did that kind of thing, you know, that, that's what really helped the civil rights movement move forward. So there's this idea of being willing to sacrifice yourself. Hmm. And Rabbi Marcus, I want to I wanna push you a little bit too. You know, you said that if we're in equal danger, so maybe if there's a man with a gun and he's, you know, I don't have to throw my body in front of the, you know, to, to absorb the bullet to save you. Maybe that's, that, that, that's true. Um, but are we in equal danger, right? Is the, is the Levite who has the possibility of being attacked by the robber in the same danger as the man who is lying bloody on the road and needs right. to be saved? Well, 100%. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think Dr. King also pushes us in our understanding that it's not just about physical danger here. Dangerous altruism isn't always or even often physical. Um, that are we willing to put our reputations and our 
livelihoods and our jobs and our comfortable middle class lives on the line. Because if I don't, then then what what happens to the people that I that are suffering? I think in in the end, my my line of logic is 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 used too often, right? In the end, you know, Jewish tradition, like, yes, you know, don't throw yourself uh, in front of uh, someone else a bullet for some. Your life comes first. If it's literally that equal, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. In this case, it's not. And too often, though, we think it's equal. Too often, we conceive in our mind, I have my own suffering. I don't want to get in trouble. My life matters too. And like so easily we rationalize, you know, our, our not helping somebody else. And I think that's why I'm trying to think this way, because I'm trying to locate that those thoughts within our own mind and our own psychology, because if, if we completely other this person who is, if we completely other the priests and the Levites, right. And say, it's somebody else. It's not me. Then it's not hel- his, 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 his speech isn't helpful. Right. Uh, we have to imagine ourselves as we are the priest and the Levite. We are the ones who aren't going out and putting ourselves in dangerous situations to help somebody else. And where in our own lives are we making the same rationalization as the priests and the Levite, right? Uh, wherever we find ourselves in. And I, I, yeah. which, which feels authentic to, to what Jesus is saying, right? We're not, as, as you said, we, he wasn't speaking to Samaritans, right? They weren't supposed to, they, were, they, they did think the Samaritans were the others. They, he was speaking to, I assume the Jews and, you know, they're supposed to see themselves as the experts in the law and the priests and the Levites. That's who he's pushing to, to do better. Yeah. In fact, if Tyrone was here, he'd, he'd he'd lift this quote, Dr. King, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Yeah. That's where you really find out who you are when you stand with the people and on issues that perhaps make you uncomfortable. 100%. Not easy. Not no. easy. Because it's easy to hide, as Rabbi Rachel said, I've got my job to think about. I've got my position. I've got my power. Mm-hmm. I've got that to think about. Why would I put that at risk? But then that tells us who you really are when you say, well, these, these things matter to me but I'm not willing to risk who I am or what I have for that. Mm -hmm. It's like the pastor told me when I was at a Summit Avenue church, I'm not willing to put myself or my congregation at risk for black pastors or black churches. Mm -hmm. Then what am I here for? What what are you talking about being in relationship with me for? There is no relationship. There is no relationship. Speaking about brother, right? Yeah, it's talking about brother and talking about a person of faith. I think we see it all the time in like corporations, right? That they'll get on whatever the, you know, the next big trend is, whether it was Black Lives Matter or whatever they they see as the, you know, whatever the the hot the hot trend is and they'll, you know, put out some commercial or they'll but they're still upholding their own systems of capitalism and power and they're not they're not really putting themselves on the line and I think that's so often how we are as well. Like, do, do we really, maybe we'll make our, we'll make a donation. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll put on the, you know, the black square on our Instagram, but do, are we really, are we really putting ourselves on the line? Are we really engaging in dangerous altruism for the things that we believe in? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, a hundred percent agree with what is being said here, but I'm just providing a hopefully useful counterpoint. here. Um, what about the people who say, you know, I don't want to cause a ruckus. I don't want to lose my position of power because I can use my position of power to do something good, right? Like, for example, I want to stay on the good side of the police, right? 
so that I can change the police from within, right? And use my power for good. So therefore, I'm not going to do the dangerous altruism, which is going to basically take my power away, right? So that I can't make change for the good. Do you think that that line of logic has any standing? No. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Because how much are you going to disrupt if you're afraid of being kicked out? If you want to be included to the point that you're willing to sit there and oftentimes be silent or say, well, you know what, that's cool, then chances are you're not going to really be the disruptor that you think you are. Probably more than anything else, you're probably going to live more than anything else. You're probably going to help those folks understand that what they're doing is probably right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Really good. I mean, I'm trying to think like, you know, what happens if the priest and Levite were friends with the Roman emperor and could say, this, this road is very dangerous. Let's change the road. Let's get more Roman guards on to make sure there are no more robbers. And instead of band-aiding the solution, let's fix the solution permanently so that no one ever gets hurt again. Right, which you're quoting, Dr. King brings that up. Yeah, yeah. you're on the Jericho Road Improvement exactly. Association. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But like, the Jericho Road Improvement Association will never get better until you find out what makes, not what makes it, what it is. Uh, how does he say that, Rabbi Rachel? Well, I think he, I mean, I think he says, in the meantime, that that man is lying on the road bleeding out, right? Like right. that, that you might be trying to, you know, trying to, to save, to save the, the bigger systematic issues, but you can't ignore the person who's sitting in front of you. Yeah. Now, this would constantly come up with me when I was, I was trying to start this, this homeless warming station. I was able to start it, thank God, and, and house uh, homeless people in our, my previous synagogue. And, and the resistance I keep getting to it was like, shouldn't the government be doing this? Like, shouldn't we be working within the government to create a more permanent solution so there are no more homeless people? And people actually like use that as an excuse to say, therefore, I'm not going to do it because if I do it, then it'll give the government an excuse to kind of push it down the road and not actually help in long-term solutions to homeless people. I'm saying, and you had to just say, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like sometimes band-aids are necessary, right? To help the person who is immediately suffering. And, and there's, that is the most important thing at that moment, right? The person who is immediately suffering, it should take down all walls. Like I remember this myself. For me, like, like when I was in um, that old, there was a big Mexican population. There. And when stuff started coming out from during the Trump administration about, you know, uh, making it, you know, going immigration restrictions and all this stuff like this, Mexicans began to become very afraid to leave their house and go, go things like get their prescription medicine. And they were really suffering. And at that point in my mind, I was like, wait a second, whatever politics, whatever is right or wrong about immigration, and we can have those debates, what really matters right now is the Mexican uh, people who aren't in my neighborhood who are not able to get their prescription medicine. Like that, that is what is essential right now. And if I don't focus on that right now and I get lost in the politics of trying to have more long-term solutions, right, then I'm, I'm completely lost. And that's evil in that moment. You know, one of the things I, I tend to think be this. Some of the very people who can make change sit in our congregations. So we don't have to look to government to get things done necessarily. Some of the very people who can make change actually sit in our congregation and they can use their influence. They can use their relationships. They can use whatever resources they have to make life better for people who 
are not necessarily where they are. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I just want, I do wonder, like, does it matter if the, if the priest and the Levite aren't stopping because they, because they're on their way to the Jericho Road Improvement <laughs> Association and, they, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, to fix the systemic issues or they don't stop because they're scared or they don't stop because they think that guy is gross and they don't want to get their hands bloody. Like, does it matter the reason why they don't stop there? I think they're they're. I don't I don't want to cast everyone with the same brush. I think it does matter. Right. Like if you are working towards solving systemic issues, like good. Right. We well, I want to applaud that. I don't want to say don't be working towards the systemic issues. And that's better that you're engaged in the conversation than to not be engaged in the conversation at all and just be focused on you know, enriching your your own self and your own status and and not caring about anyone else in the world. So I guess I do. I like wonder, would would Dr. King, would Jesus think that, you know, is there a difference? Is there a, is there a difference for the reason why you're not getting involved or you're not involved and, and therefore you're just not doing what you need to be doing? I think you said something earlier, Rabbi Rachel, that it doesn't matter what you're about at that moment. The only thing that should matter is that there is a bleeding man in front of you yeah. or a bleeding woman. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Judaism would say the same thing, right? Action is more important than the reason why you're doing it. Action itself is more important. And if, and if first lowly Shema, we see this expression in Judaism, first without doing it for the right reason, uh, you do it for without the right reason. Uh, that's okay. Cause eventually doing it for the wrong reason, you'll eventually start doing it for the right reason. You'll eventually learn to do it for the right reason. But just start doing it for the wrong reason first and you eventually will learn, right? That's how we deal with kids, right? Give them a, a candy bar for going through, going to Hebrew school or, or learning a Hebrew letter for us, right? Uh, you know, and, and hopefully that's not the reason why they end up learning Hebrew, right? But that's how eventually they, they learn. Uh, let's go to excessive altruism, shall we? Reverend, would you like to read this one? Sure. Excessive altruism. Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick has made an impressive impressive distinction between enforceable and unenforceable obligations. The former are regulated by the codes of society and the vigorous implementation of law enforcement agencies. Breaking these obligations spelled out on thousands of breaking, breaking these obligations spelled out on thousands of pages in law books has filled numerous prisons but unenforceable obligations are beyond the reach of the laws of society. They concern inner attitudes, genuine person-to-person relations, and expressions of compassion which law books cannot regulate and jails cannot rectify. Such obligations are met by one's commitment to an inner law written on the heart. Man-made laws assure justice but a higher law produces love. No code of conduct ever persuaded a father to love his children or a husband to show affection to his wife. The law court may force him to provide bread for the family, but it cannot make him provide the bread of love. A good father is obedient to the unenforceable. The Good Samaritan represents the conscience of mankind. 
because he also was obedient to that which could not be enforced. No law in the world could have produced such unalloyed compassion, such genuine love, such thorough altruism. Beautiful. I think this, this particular passage really registered for me. You know, I, I remember a story from our, our rabbi here in the 50s to the 80s, uh, you know, here over 35 years, a long time. And he was uh, giving, we actually have the sermon that he gave during when the Congress was considering the civil rights legislation in the 60s. And it, they discussed it for a very long time. It was kind of uh, going back and forth for many months. And he gave a sermon uh, during that time where he actually said, um, you know, don't think if they pass this legislation, we're going to be done, right? Don't think that when this legislation passes, ah, we're all equal, it's all great, wonderful, done, right? It's not. Because until we see each other as truly equal at every moment that we're able to uh, really be brothers and sisters, as you said, right? There, there, there's so much work to be done. And the real work to be done is inside the soul, right? is inside our uh, how we see each other, how we perceive each other, how we feel about each other, how we look at each other, right? And there's no law in the world that the government can pass that, that you know, can actually do that work. And I just, I remember that line. And just to say that in the 60s, even before the civil rights law was passed, in what foresight that he had to know that we're, we're so much still struggling with these issues, even though we passed those laws way back when. It's funny that you said you connected to this passage. I, this is the passage I find myself most kind of bristling against. Um, and I think it's because of, you know, it, it doesn't feel Jewish, right. <laughs> right? It doesn't feel Jewish to say that the law isn't enough. We are so, we, you know, we are exactly as you said, that we, we believe so deeply that if you legislate behavior and people follow the behavior, it will lead to the, to the right intention. So, so Judaism tries so hard, you know, it says that um, you can't legislate a husband to show affection to his wife. But we sure try, you know, we'll say, <laughs> we, we even say, you know, our Jewish law books even, even dictate how many times, you know, you have to have marital, marital relations each week, you know, because they're, they're, they are trying, they're trying so hard to say, you know, we can legislate enough behavior um, to, to really cause people to be the people we want to be in the world. And, and I was even thinking that with the, with the Good Samaritan text, that if this had been a Jewish text, it would have said, and therefore the law is that if you see a person lying on the road in these conditions, then you have to do these actions to help them. And, and if there are different conditions, then you have different actions you have to do. And if this, you know, like that, it would have tried to do the legislation as opposed to saying like, this is how you, you gain eternal life by, by just doing, going above and beyond and being a good, a good person. Um, so I find myself struggling with this text. Like, is it, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think you bring up a really good point. Um, but in the end, I think what's important is that it does lead to a change of heart. I, I think in the end, law in itself is not good to actually, that, that what, what, what hopefully the law is leading us towards, educating us towards, is love of our fellow. Exactly what the, the expert in the law replied to Jesus, right? Which is to love, love, the God, love, love, love the Lord your God and love your fellow neighbor, right? Like that maybe in Judaism it might start in the law, right? But it should end in the heart, right? Like it should end in our actual care and love and seeing each other. And should, the law should transform us and change us and make us different. But know? even like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, right? Like that's, 
then that fo- what follows that is, and here are all the meets vote. Here are all the obligations. How do you, right? Judaism would say, how do you love God? You love God through action. You love yeah. God through following God's obligations and goes, God's it laws. It goes in tandem, though. It goes in tandem, though, because I think, you know, look, yes, I think Martin Luther King understands that, like, you need a change of heart, but I don't think Martin Luther King would tell you and that therefore we shouldn't have civil rights legislation, right? Like he wouldn't have said that. That's what he fought all his life for, right? You know, I, I think the answer is both, right? We do need, we need both. We need the law. And why do we need both is because like, I don't know how you feel about this, Reverend, but like for me, I feel like I can't depend on my heart, right? I can break my heart open sometimes and, and have this compassion, empathy, but I feel like my heart is like heart depends on what mood I'm in, right? Like it shouldn't depend on what mood I'm in, whether I'm going to help someone out. I think that's why we take shelter in law as Jews, because we said, well, law is cold and hard. If the law commands me to help someone, whether I feel like doing it or not, or if I'm having a bad day or whatever it is, doesn't matter. It's the law. Got to do it, right? Got to put on my seatbelt, whether I feel like doing it or not, right? So I think that's the temptation and that's the power of law. How do you, how do you feel about that? Where do you stand on this? You know, I'm, I, I, I don't think I can really speak for Dr. King, but this would be my perception that there are some things that are so deeply entrenched in human beings that the law is not going to change their heart. Uh, Prejudice, racism, bias, all those kinds of things are so deeply entrenched that the law may not necessarily be the motivator to make them change. And even while the law may not motivate them to change, the good thing is the law can prevent them from hurting me. The law can prevent them from discriminating me, from discriminating against me for housing, for a job, or for a loan. It can stop them from um, exploiting me with payday loans or uh, excessive interest. Or what was that mortgage thing we had a couple of years ago where people were getting these expensive mortgages and being foreclosed on? Mm -hmm. So for you, law is like, for you, law is almost like a stopgap in case the heart doesn't yeah, change. Yeah. yeah. The protection. Yeah. Because the one thing you mentioned as you started this section is this. You would think at this point in time, we wouldn't need that because you would think that people have come so far, would have come so far by now that we wouldn't need to have laws against hate crimes. We should have developed far past that now. Yeah. It's almost like we just passed the Crown Act in Minnesota, right? Which is, you know legislating against, you know, basically being racist against someone's hairstyle, right? Yeah. Not giving them a job, right? Why do we still have to do this, right? Like, yeah. why do we, why do we still have to go to every detail of the way you, you know, is it useful? Is it not useful? Obviously we're doing it, right? Because it's a stopgap, but, but it's so incomplete in terms of, you know, what the change that needs to be made. Like, you, I, I would think you would obviously say, Rachel, like you can see it in social change, right? You obviously would say civil rights legislation is not enough. Are you saying therefore that what we really need is the government to make more legislation and that would fix the, the problem of racism. No, I mean, yes, there should be I mean, more. Yes, I'm, there should be. Yes, hope, there should yeah. be more legislation. And, and yes, we should do everything we can. But I'm thinking about it from a religious perspective, right? right? Like that, that's where reli- that's why that's why we have connected so deeply to a religion of laws, because, um, you know, I, I'm not a I'm not a politician, but I am a rabbi. And so I can only speak to that, that, you know, there I don't I just something is pushing up against me of that. I think that there should be there should be it shouldn't be a a good Samaritan in our in in our um, 
in our society today means someone who goes above and beyond, right? Like a good Samaritan law is someone who, you know, calls calls in, you know, to help someone who's overdosing and they won't be, you know, they won't be, uh, you know, punished for it. But you don't have to do it. That's just you're doing it. You're going above and beyond to do something above and beyond the law. Whereas it feels like it should be, no, that is, that that should be the obligation. The Good Samaritan should be the obligation to to help the person bleeding on the side of the road. And then, so I'm wondering, like, how do we, but maybe we can't. Maybe there is a limit to a limit to law. And we have to, at some point, as people of faith, push push ourselves and our communities to to go up beyond and and rely on the on the love but it but i i don't know yeah maybe this is where we differ because I, right. I really believe that judaism that only laws is dead in the waters it's exactly what jesus is railing against right that's the problem with the pharisees and in, in in the new testament texts and we see this i mean you know this we have many jews who for them, Judaism is the Shulchan Aruch, is, is the Jewish law code, is the Jewish legal code. And like, if you lose the heart of what you're actually trying to accomplish and where you're trying to get to and transform as a person, it doesn't just work just the laws alone, you know? Um, but to, well, we can continue this machloka, this controversy another time. It's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. You know? So then as people of faith, we are after heart change and transformation? I would hope. I mean, that's that's at least what I'm after. I think we're certainly after heart change. I just think we differ. I think our religious traditions differ about how we go about it. Do we go about it through legislating more and more action, which is, I think, how Judaism goes about it? But yes, we believe that you should love your neighbor, but we don't know how to legislate love. So we're going to say, so therefore, these are all of the actions that you have to do towards your neighbor. You have to help them when they're bleeding on the side of the road. You have to break Shabbat to save them from a burning building. You have to, you know, like that there are, these are all the laws you have to do. And I'm not sure how, how, how does Christianity encourage people to be the good Samaritan? Like what, how did, what do they rely on? Do they, are they relying on faith? Are they relying on a persuasive sermon? Like how, if they if we take away the law, then what are we relying on? I would think that the, the first thing we rely on is the fact that you believe uh, and that you have faith, yeah. that you are a person of faith. And that as a person of faith, you'll, you will show love for your neighbor and you will be neighborly as the stopgap. If that's not where you are, if you've got a twisted sense of what faith is, or if you've got a twisted sense of what love is, uh, there was an interesting story on NPR yesterday about the rise of Christian nationalism. Mm you know, where people are, are of this idea that if you're not a Christian, you don't belong in this country. So what we hope, believe, wish for is that your faith would make you act right. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't, then the law should make you stop lynching me or shooting me under the pretense of the fact that I'm a dangerous individual. Uh, the law should stop you from, again, exploiting me. Mm -hmm. right. And that's exactly what he says in this next text. Yeah. The power and limits of law, right? Let us never succumb to the temptation of believing that legislation and judicial decrees play only minor roles in solving this problem. Morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrain the heartless. The law cannot make an employer love an employee, but it can prevent him from refusing to hire me because of the color of my skin. Habits, if not the hearts of people, have been and are being altered every day by legislative acts, judicial decisions, and executive orders. 
let us not be misled by those who argue that segregation cannot be ended by the force of law. Right. So he, which he, Martin Luther King tends to do. He says something and then he backs away and he, he kind of put the disclaimer in here, which I think is really essential. I, I, I think, he, I don't, I think you like, Rachel and I, as, as many married couples do, uh, have, have uh, gotten into an argument uh, sometimes about cleaning the house. I, Rachel's very clean. I don't tend to be a clean. I tend to be a re- relatively disorganized uh, mess. And Rachel is clean and organized. And so uh, we run a house together, believe it or not. And sometimes I don't hold up to uh, a standard of clean. And I, I kept saying to her over and over again, um, just tell me what I need to do. Like, what are the things that I'm not, that I'm not seeing? And I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna see the 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 house like you do, and what needs to be clean. So just itemize it. Tell me. And you said back. What did you say back to me? You said back to me, right? I can't itemize all the things that you need to do. You need to look around with your eyes and actually say what needs to be done and take responsibility for it. And for me, that was a big transformative moment of saying we need to be equal partners in making sure the house is clean. And I realized because because there's constantly new needs every day. Does that mean? Like, and you said to me yourself, that doesn't mean we need to make more, more rules and more. I don't want that to be more things I need to be telling you to do and show you. You need to come up with that by yourself. And that only happens through a change of heart and a change of perception. Did I prove you wrong to your own story? <laughs> anyway, uh, very fun and, 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 and really important discussions. And I, I, I think this text really goes into, you know, differences within Christianity and Judaism, which are really essential. In the end, I think what's important to point out is our commonality is that we're trying to get to the same place. We're all trying to get to loving our fellow human being and loving God, right? And being people of faith. We're just disagreeing about what the technology is, right? You know, is it, is it the law that leads us to change or is it a faith that leads us to change, right? And that's, in the end, we want to change. Right? We both want to get to that point of becoming better people. Final thoughts on this, including thoughts. Reverend, I'll let you go first here. It's a great sermon. <laughs> Good one. I mean, and you know, uh, it is just as timely now as it was when he originally wrote it. Yeah. Which is devastating. We wish it, we wish it wasn't. I mean, it's amazing that he has the, that he had the prophetic foresight to be able to write such timeless words, but we wish they weren't. We wish that our society had advanced more, that we could read this and say, can you believe this is how people were? Right. Yeah. I think that's really challenging. I think what you bring in is really challenging in that way. It's a great sermon. And Dr. Martin Luther King is obviously fantastic and amazing, but I wish we could be better. I wish we could be different. I wish we could actually change our hearts on a massive scale and really get to see the humanness of each other. Um, I wish we could engage in dangerous altruism. Um, You know, not not just being throwing ourselves on fire and everything and just kind of uh, chasing the siren, you know, as they say, um, but 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 be willing to go beyond the boundaries of what we're comfortable with to be here for each other. And I, I think Reverend Reverend Thomas, let me say that like I want to make sure that we're continuing to be in relationship, right? When something comes up, I want to be able to um, step up with the rest of the Jewish community and lead our community to say, how can we be there? Uh, for the black community at this time. And I'm, I'm sure it's true in the opposite way as well, as we, we've discussed many times. And I just look forward to uh, together to, te- to teaching and educating our flock um, how to step beyond our boundaries, how to step into that uncomfortable place, into that dangerous place, to be an excessive altruist, to be someone who really does, as Martin Luther King says, put as our first thought 
the needs of the other, right? And 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 I hope that we can accomplish that together. Yeah. I mean, which I think is just, is so important. What you said about being uncomfortable. I mean, I think so so often Dr. King is seen and used in our society as this kind of like moderate universal message that we can pull out some nice quotes from. Um, but that's why it's so important to delve into the sermons themselves because they do, they're they really uncomfortable and they push you really hard. Yeah, I feel like and they're, yeah, yeah, and they're radical. I mean, this is not a moderate. Um, and so I think to really engage in that is so important that, that this is not a sermon about um, about being nice. This is a sermon about putting yourself on the line in a dangerous and an excessive way. Um, and that's challenging, really challenging. And, and I think that that makes it all the more important to, to, to delve into and to sit with. So thank you so much for being here today, Reverend Doctor. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, hopefully we'll be, this can turn into sort of a series and we can go through more Dr. Martin Luther King sermons, discuss them together as sort of a, a branch of our podcast, maybe. Um, uh, next time, I think we'll also have Tyrone Terrell here with us, one of our, our, our both of our good friends, um, who's, uh, I believe, head of the African-American Leadership Council, right, um, in St. Paul as well. And so hopefully we'll have him. I know Dr. Martin Luther King was a, a big part of his life. Um, just thank you so much for taking the time and being here and, and talking to us and just really, really appreciate it. Remember, comment, like, like our podcast. Um, you know, subscribe to it. It's always important. Uh, if you, especially if you like this episode, please feel free to email us or didn't like it or whatever you want to say. You can email us at livingjewishlypodcast at gmail.com. And also we, of course, thank our amazing editor and producer, Jesse Ulrich. Uh, and also, of course, the writers of our theme song, Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger. Why don't you take it away? Celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus.